everyone, and welcome to Genocide News Now, a news update from the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Courtney Holloman, and you can find us at www.blimkininstitute.com, as well as on Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes. Our first piece of news comes from the state of Israel where Israeli troops were condemned for their overuse of force towards Palestinians after two-year-old Mohammed El-Tamani was shot in the head last Thursday near his village of Nibisala while riding in a car with his father. He was later airlifted to Israel's Sheba Hospital, where he died from his wounds. The Israeli military has spoken out about the incident, arguing that soldiers only opened fire after a gunman in the area shot at the nearby Jewish settlement of Nariv Tus. However, the boy's father, Hamata El-Tamani, who was also shot and treated at a Palestinian hospital, told the Associated Press that he had just buckled up his son in the car and they were driving to visit an uncle when the bullet struck. Israel has received surprising backlash over its use of force in this case. On Tuesday, Israel's strongest ally, the United States, released a statement urging Israel to probe its use of deadly force during military operations among civilians. The U.S. Office of Palestinian Affairs said in a statement, We express our condolences to the family of Mohammed Tamani. We urge Israel to evaluate all use of deadly force that involves civilian casualties, and we call on Israel and Palestinian leadership to take responsible actions to end the conflict. Israel's use of deadly force is nothing new and comes one month after Israel's attack on Palestinian Muslim worshippers at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. On April 4, 2023, Israeli police brutally assaulted Palestinian Muslim worshippers and forcibly removed them from their holy Al-Aqsa Mosque located in occupied East Jerusalem, where hundreds of men, women, elderly people, and children were staying overnight to pray during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Witnesses have described the scene as very barbaric, stating that the army broke the upper windows of the mosque and began throwing stun grenades at us. They made us lay on the ground and they handcuffed us one by one and took us all out. They kept swearing at us during this time. It was very barbaric. Israel's unlawful assault on Al-Aqsa Mosque has injured dozens of worshippers and has led to the unlawful arrest of 400 Palestinians. Following the overnight attack of worshippers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the state of Israel launched a serious attacks on the Gaza Strip. Israel's air assault took place early in the morning, striking multiple sites in Gaza, which has caused massive damage to Palestinian homes and property. Israel's attack on the Gaza Strip comes after rockets were fired from Gaza in response to the Israeli police brutal raid and assault at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Israel's recent attack on Al-Aqsa Mosque stems from status quo rules around the site, which only allows Muslims to worship at the site. While non-Muslims are allowed to visit the compound, They are not allowed to worship there due to the sacredness of the mosque, which is regarded as Islam's third holiest site after Mecca and Medina. Israel accepted those terms in 1967 and recognized the status quo arrangement as the legally binding framework regulating the administration of the Al-Aqsa compound. 
However, the site is also revered by Jews, who refer to the site as Temple Mount. Israel's far-right groups have long attempted to change the status quo to allow Jewish prayer at the site. In addition to prayers, far-right Israeli groups have also called for a temple to be built in place of the Al-Asta Mosque. The Lincoln Institute for Genocide Prevention has issued a red flag alert calling upon Israel to honor and abide by the legally binding framework that regulates the administration of the holy Al-Asta compound, as outlined in the status quo arrangement they've previously recognized. The Lincoln Institute also calls for Israel to respect the religious rights of Palestinian Muslims. Additionally, the Lincoln Institute calls on the international community, especially Israel's closest ally, the United States, to make it absolutely clear that further atrocities will not be continuanced. Israel is increasingly vulnerable to the commission of the mass murder form of genocide against Palestinians. Our second piece of news brings us to Ethiopia, where violence has increased in Ethiopia's second largest region of Mahara. Many Amharans have been killed in violent clashes with federal forces. These violent clashes stem from the announcement by the government of Ethiopian Prime Minister Abi Ahmed that it intends to in integrate all regional special armed forces into the federal forces. This announcement was met with grave concern in protests in Amhara. Given the ongoing atrocities being committed against Amharans across Ethiopia, we, which many believe are, support, are supported by Imden's regime. Since April 6, demonstrations and unrest have been increasing in Amharan, and dozens of Amharan protesters have been killed, notably in Kumbalachi and Baridar, the regional capital. In the latter, an explosion in a bar killed two individuals and injured many others. Exact figures on the number of the injured and dead remain unknown for the first time being due to the turmoil on the ground and the ongoing clashes. The protesters are concerned about ongoing massacres against Amaharan people, particularly in Omaha, travel restrictions for Amaharan citizens, demolitions of Amaharan homes in the capital city of Addis Abaya, and arrests of Amaharan leaders by the Abi regime. The recent announcement by the federal government that they intend to co-op local Amaharan defense forces into the Ethiopian Federal Army is feared by Amaharan representatives as it would leave the region without armed forces capable of defending the inhabitants and therefore render the overall region at the mercy of hostile neighboring regions and federal armed first forces. Amaharan authorities say the military restructuring plan is unconstitutional as the Ethiopian constitution stipulates that states have the right to establish and administer a state police force, listed in Article 52. The Lumpkin Institute for Genocide Prevention has issued a red flag alert for Ethiopia, urging for the Ethiopian federal government to halt the widespread violence against Amaharan civilians and demonstrators, and instead to engage in peaceful dialogue with the Amaharan authorities to find a nonviolent way out of the political crisis. Similarly, we remind the Ethiopian federal state and its representatives that it is their responsibility to ensure the security of all Ethiopian citizens, as well as of humanitarian 
personnel on the ground under the Geneva Conventions and the provisions of the Kampala Convention. Any act to the contrary represents a serious violation of the international obligations assumed by the Ethiopian state authorities and should be tried in a court of law. Our third piece of news comes from Azerbaijan, where the Azerbaijani state and military has continued to attack Armenians in the Republic of Arsa and in the Republic of Armenia. On April 11th, Azerbaijani troops attacked the border village of Tih, which is located on the sovereign territory of Armenia. From around 4 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. local time, Azerbaijan shelled the village, resulting in the deaths of four Armenian soldiers. A similar attack also occurred on May 11th, when Armenia's defense ministry reported that Azerbaijan shelled its positions near the village of Sult. Were their shared border on their shared border. The attack claimed the life of one Azerbaijani soldier and resulted in four Armenian soldiers being wounded. While both situations have stabilized, these attacks are not isolated incidents. These attacks are the latest in a series of attacks since September of 2022 by Azerbaijani troops against sovereign Armenian territory. The attacks occur in spite of both sides working on a peace deal to reach a diplomatic solution on the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. Azerbaijan's actions are in violation of the Territorial Treaty of 2020, which put an end to the 44-day war. They fly in the face of the International Court of Justice legitimacy by undermining its orders. When a state submits itself to the ICG's jurisdiction, as Azerbaijan has done in the case of Armenia versus Azerbaijan, it is bound by the ICJ's decision in that case. The ICJ has issued provisional measures ordering Azerbaijan to respect the rights of Armenian prisoners of wars, protect Armenian cultural heritage, and ensure free movement along the Lachin Corridor. Azerbaijan's actions over the past couple of weeks are not in accordance with these orders. The longer these transitions go unpunished, the more international law is rendered impotent because its voluntary nature is useless if the state decides not to implement the decisions of international tribunals. The Lincoln Institute for Genocide Preve Prevention has issued a red flag alert calling upon Azerbaijan to honor and abide by the legally binding framework of the Trilateral Treaty, the ICJ's provisional measures issued in the case of Armenia versus Azerbaijan, and all international norms to which the country has become a state party. The Lemkin Institute also calls for international powers to compel Azerbaijan to act in accordance with its international obligations to respect the rights of Armenians both in Arsak and Armenia proper and to cease its violations of Armenia's territorial integrity. Currently, the international community is operating according to Azerbaijan's narratives and interests, making it complicit in genocide. Our last piece of news brings us to Sudan, where the region has been plagued by violence due to the ongoing civil war between rival factions of the military government. On April 15th, Violence broke out around the capital city of Khorotam and the Darfar region. 
due to the ongoing rivalry between the country's army and a paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Forces. The conflict began with attacks by the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces on government sites, which included several armed forces bases in Sudan, including Karatov and its airport. Later clashes between the two groups occurred at the presidential palace, the residence of General Al-Barham, and at the headquarters of the state broadcaster Sudan TV, which was later captured by RSF forces. Additionally, the conflict has contributed to lawlessness in the region. On April 23rd, a series of mass escapes occurred at Kobar Prison and four other prisons, with over 25,000 detainees escaping. Many residents that live in Armadam, a city across the White Nile from the capital Khartoum, have also reported RSF fighters robbing residents, looting, and burning down the shops of all traders. The conflict between the two groups stems from differences over plans for a new military transition and the integration of the rapid support forces into the regular army. Leading the, op leading the opposing forces are the Sundanese army generals Abba Fatah Barham and the RSF's general Mohammed Haham Delago, better known by his nickname Hamadi. Both generals served under Bashar and played key roles in the genocide that began in Sudan's Darfur region in 2003. As of today, fighting has still continued in various areas of Sudan, including Khartoum, Khartoumbari, Oradami, and Darfur. Many nations, including China, the United States, and Saudi Arabia, have sent delegations to Sudan in order to meditate the conflict. However, as of now, no resolutions have been met. As of May 16th, it's been reported that at least 1,000 people have been killed and more than 5,000 others have been injured, according to the World Health Organization and Sudan's Federal Health Ministry. The Sudan Doctor Syndicate said at least 487 civilians have been killed and 2,000 others injured. On May 6, Save the Children UK said that at least 190 children have been killed in the conflict. The United Nations has reported that more than 450,000 people have fled Sudan in over the almost two months of war there, with nearly half of them escaping to countries Sudan shares a border with. Despite the UNHCR strongly urging neighboring countries to keep their borders open for those fleeing Sudan, many neighboring countries like Egypt have toughened visa rules for Sudanese nationals fleeing the war. Many refugees who had previously fled Sudan before the conflict and were housed in neighboring countries, now face the threat of involuntary return. As of June 4th, the UNHCR has reported that 88,598 refugees from South Sudan, 3,456 from Central Africa Republic, and 55 from Ethiopia had been forced to return from Sudan to their respective countries. The ongoing conflict has also fueled the fear of famine to many still trapped in the country due to resources rapidly decreasing because crops have not been planted as a consequence of the war. The Lincoln Institute for Genocide Prevention and the Darfar Women Action Group has issued a joint statement which strongly condemned and expressed grave concern about the recent and ongoing conflict between the Sundanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces Parliamentary Force. The statement also called for the international community 
to stop using traditional conflict resolution mechanisms that has not yet yielded any progress, but instead to use a genocide and atrocity prevention approach that prioritizes accountability by taking the junta to tribal to pave way for peace with justice. That is all we have for this episode of Genocide News Now, but be sure to tune into future episodes and stay up to date on global news. Be sure to visit our website at www.blimkininstitute.com for more of our work in the field of genocide prevention. And if you would like to take action and make an individual difference, feel free to take a look at our list of resources on our Take Action page on our website. Thank you for listening and have a great day.